Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. This podcast is brought to you by Green and Blacks, a rich, smooth, and truly delicious chocolate experience. You are listening to the Irish Times Women's Podcast. I'm Cathy Sheridan. In today's episode, we're bringing you a conversation I had recently with author and broadcaster Dame Jenny Murray. You will probably know Jenny from BBC Woman's Hour, a female-focused radio show which has been on air since 1946. We are huge fans of it here on the Women's Podcast. Jenny has hosted Woman's Hour for nearly half of her life, taking up the role in 1987. Last week, she announced her departure from the show, a huge decision for the iconic broadcaster, but she says now is the time to move on. She won't be twiddling her thumbs in retirement, however, because Jenny has just released her eighth book, a very personal account of her weight struggles throughout her life, which she has boldly named Fat Cow, Fat Chance. The book brings you on a journey from Jenny's happy childhood in South Yorkshire to some darker days in university when she was hooked on diet pills. It explains the life-changing surgery she had in her mid-60s to address her weight issues once and for all. And she tells us the outcome of that. Jenny spoke to me about her constant dieting which always resulted in weight gain, how her mental health suffered along the way and how a chance meeting with a doctor on Woman's Hour changed her life. Here she is, Dame Jenny Murray. Jenny, you turned 70 last May. You're nearly as old as women's hour itself. And a few days ago, you announced you were leaving it in October after 33 years. Nearly half your life. The Daily Telegraph has compared this to the Ravens leaving the Tower of London. (laughs) Why are you going? (laughs) (laughs) You know, I've loved every minute of it. I've had a great time. I've been lucky. It's been a privilege to do it for so long. But there does come a point where you think, hang on, can I continue getting up at half past five in the morning, making sure the dogs have been for a little walk and I've got to work and I've done all the research and I've written the script and I've prepared the interviews and then I go into the studio and do the programme, and then come home and do the research for the next day. <sighs> it's It gets to the point where you think, mm, maybe there might be some other things to do that might not be quite so taxing, much as I've loved it, you know. That's a very early start indeed, Jenny. But I've seen people say, you know, the Andrew Mars and the Melvin Braggs, they carry on forever. And you adored that Radio 4 platform. What are you going to do instead? I've got no idea at the moment. Uh, I'm going to use that old saying that I used to really tease a lot of men about when they were leaving big jobs. And they'd say, I'm going to spend more time with my family. So actually, for the time being, that is the plan. My husband and I are in the process. We've just had a chaotic morning trying to sort out sending the deposit on a house through online banking, uh, we eventually went down to the bank and just got them to do it for us because we didn't really trust it. Uh, so we're buying a new cottage by the sea and we're going to have a little bit of time. To, he can't believe it, actually, because, you know, we've spent 30, 35 years because I, I did the Today programme before that before Woman's Hour, um, of, of me running up and down, you know, going up to the Peak District, coming down to London, working, 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 him staying home, looking after the kids. And he, he keeps saying, are you sure you're going to be here, like, for a whole week? 
yes, that is the plan. You know, maybe I can do some more writing, maybe do another book, but do it from home instead of having to constantly travel up and down. By the sea. That is so beautiful. Jenny, age has kicked in in a strange way in the last few months for a lot of us. This thing, I, I know that you were going into Broadcasting House to do your show until you turned 70. And then suddenly the BBC told you you had to do it from home because you were that age. And you were a bit fed up about it. Did you feel it was a bit ageist? I was more than a bit fed up about it because, you know, I was here on my own in, in London apart from the three dogs and the cat, of course, who always stay with me. And I thought, my goodness, if I can't go in and I'm stuck here and I can't go down to see my husband who was already down on the coast and I can't see my friends and my son who lives just up the road won't even come into the back garden through the side gate and certainly wouldn't come into the house. He would only meet me out the front, sitting on a wall with a two-metre distance, I was going to go completely insane. And I thought, you know, if you're okay to do a programme in the building on the 11th of May, how come you're not still okay to do it on the 13th of May? So um, I did write an article saying I thought it was ageist. I didn't need to be sheltered. Um, and of course, they read it. We did do a practice, actually, to try and do it from home, just in case, you know, anything did go wrong. Um, and it, it's OK if you're doing something like the Today programme, where you've got two presenters, you've got a newsreader, you've got a weather person, you've got somebody doing the sport. If everything went wrong and your Wi-Fi just died, at least somebody else could pick up and keep the thing going. With a programme like Woman's Hour, you're on your own. It's just one presenter. There's nobody else that you can go to. All the guests that you're talking to are down a line. Their lines might go down and you've got to quickly go on to somebody else. So I said to the editor, look, I really don't think this is a good idea. She said, no, I agree with you. I don't think it's a good idea either. So in the end, the BBC said, look, if you will sign a piece of paper saying it is your choice to come in. We haven't forced you to come in. So, of course, if I did get the virus, they couldn't be blamed for it, uh, which I very happily did and carried on going in. And you remained healthy and well. Jenny, you have never been sort of slow about laying your views on the line, which can, must have been a sort of a fairly delicate balance under BBC impartiality guidelines and all that sort of thing. Is your leaving going to free you to speak about things? I'm leaving for exactly the reasons I told you what comes next. I have no idea. I refuse to call it retirement because to me that's just a dirty word. Um, but, you know, no plans at the moment. Just a chance to, frankly, relax. Right. We can talk about the book because, in a sense, it converges with what I've just said, which is you've written a book which I think is terribly interesting. It's a very personal book. It's poignant. It's powerful. It's pacey. Uh, it's also quite controversial in parts. You know, you, you for example, I think you've, uh, you haven't supported the Fat Pride movement, for example. But the title of the book makes me wince a little bit. I, I was carrying it around in the last few weeks at various places and I almost didn't want people to see the cover because it's the kind of thing that, that you and I would both have absolutely shrunk from in the past. Yet you call the book this. So can you tell us, what you called it and why? I called the book Fat Cow, Fat Chance. It is an arresting title, I think. You know, it went unnoticed. But the reason I used it is because I start the book by saying how absolutely horrible it's been to be obese. And, you know, I at the moment weigh just under 14 stone, at my worst, I weighed 24 stone. I was extremely obese. And I would be sitting in my car, pulling up to the traffic lights or walking in the park with my dogs. And some bloke or group of blokes, and they were always blokes, 
would go past saying, oh, fat cow, or fat, even worse words than cow. Uh, oh, wouldn't go there, would you? Um, or uh, do it all the pies, love, you know, and it was absolutely infuriating. And the reason I suddenly got struck by, number one, how common it was, because other women have written about it, and how appalling it was when I went to a conference about obesity and a young Irish metabolic surgeon stood up at this conference and said, you know, it's interesting, isn't it, that we have hate speech, which uh, is against the law. And if anyone calls you out on your sex, your gender, your race, you know, and he listed your disability, he listed all these things. And they looked at the audience and said, um, and what is not included in that list? He said, uh, and the whole audience went, oh, of course. And he said, obesity. And, you know, why is it not considered hate speech for people to walk through the street and call somebody a fat cow? And that's exactly the expression he used. So it was really important for me to say that and to say in the book, I don't ever want to hear anybody being called a fat cow or worse ever again. Jenny, I think one of the, like many women, I think, who've read your book, um, I had this image in my head all the while of this, of the author, a highly intelligent, roaringly successful woman in a cutthroat world, a dame, uh, whose life is measured out in slim years, diet years, fat years, fear years, and all the time giving, as you say, Oscar-winning performances of being happy, but privately feeling just fear and misery. Is that a fair description? It is a fair description. Um, and it took me a long time to understand why it had happened to me to understand that obesity is far more complicated than the simple eat less, exercise more, which, of course, we're hearing an awful lot of at the moment. And once I started to research the science of it and began to understand that genetics plays a very strong part in it, I had two extremely fat grandmas. Not only were they extremely fat, they were also extremely short. You know, they were really as round as they were long. And of course, they never bothered about it. it. It never worried them. But when I started to think about the genetics and began to understand what's behind the genetics, that, you know, somewhere in our dim and distant past, and this clearly happened on both sides of my family, my father's and my mother's, there were people who lived in an area of famine where there was not enough food to go round. But the people who survived that famine were the people who were able to retain fat. And they kept going. Even though they had very little to eat, they still managed to retain what they had. And it was a survival technique. So you know, I have no doubt that had I ever been in a famine situation, I would probably have lived through it because my body certainly knows how to retain fat. So there was the genetic side of it. There was also the, 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 the kind of hormonal side of it, you know, that we all have a metabolic system that works differently. Everybody's different. I've got friends who, you know, we could go out to dinner together and they would eat lots and lots and lots of chips and I would try not to eat any chips and they wouldn't put on an ounce. I would look at a chip and put on a stone. You know, there's no doubt there was a real problem there. And then, of course, there's the environment. We're finally beginning to look at what the food environment is doing to us. You know, at last, there seems to be a prime minister who has recognised how dangerous obesity can be because he nearly popped his clogs with COVID-19. Um, and there was a period 
when I was very lonely and very depressed when we first moved up to the Peak District so that my children could go to the school we chose for them to go to, Manchester Grammar School. And I had to spend time for work in London in a flat in Camden Town, a basement flat in Camden Town, which I called Wuthering Depths, was a very apt description of it. And I was lonely. My children were young and then coming through teenage. My parents were getting older and needed my attention. I'm the only child. There was nobody else to really back them up. I was the ham in that sandwich of, you know, kids and and elderly parents. And I got really seriously depressed. And I would, you know, if I was at home, I cooked really fresh, good, healthy food for my children, as did my husband. We shared it. But when I was on my own, I never wanted to be bothered cooking for myself. I'd go down to the local supermarket and buy stuff. I could just put in the microwave or I'd order a pizza or I'd get a takeaway from somewhere. And I drank far more dry white wine than is sensible. You know, I think an awful lot of us during that period were treating dry white wine as if it were a non-alcoholic drink. And the weight went up and up and up. So I would go on a diet and a really strict diet. You know, the fatty diets I did, Ducan, I did. Um, Atkins, I did cabbage soup, and I would lose a ton of weight. And then you get to a point where you think, oh, well, you know, this is okay. I've lost the weight now. I'm fine. I can start eating normally again. And boom, up it goes, and much higher than what it was when you started. And I never understood why, why that happened. You know, why did you put on more weight? after you'd really worked hard to lose it and you'd done exercise. I used to ride horses all the time. I used to do yoga all the time. I really did try very, very hard. And it was only when I again started to research the science of it that I began to discover that 95% of us who go on diets go that way. The 5% who succeed are the ones who have such absolutely iron will that they are prepared to think about their food every hour of every day and the funniest thing ever was when the Weight Watchers person who was my kind of Weight Watchers guide because obviously I did that as well said to me look you can have spaghetti if you want it but what you do is you take it out of the packet and you stand it up straight and you see if it will fit onto a five pence piece. And then that's the amount of spaghetti you're allowed to have, you know, to get the number of points that will be okay in your diet. And I thought, I'm going to spend the rest of my life measuring spaghetti on a 5p piece. This is obsessive and crazy. And of course, what happens to the ones who maybe only need to lose five or six pounds, you can do that, it's relatively easy. If you're the kind of obsessive who's prepared to measure their bit of spaghetti, that's fine. You will lose the weight and keep it off. Most of us are not like that, partly because food is a pleasure. We're surrounded by it. You can give up alcohol. You can give up cigarettes. You can't give up eating or you will die. And what happens to your body when you've lost all that weight? A little hormone called leptin goes creeping up to your brain and goes, whoa, 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 hang on, hang on. She's starving, she's starving. She's lost far too much weight, make her eat. And all the little hunger hormones come out and go, you're hungry, you're hungry, you're hungry. And you eat, and it's your hormones that are dominating your patterns of eating. Sorry, that was a bit of a lecture, but it's all true. All true and all very interesting. I mean, are you saying, Jenny, that none of those diets actually work if you are more than a few pounds overweight? They don't. They don't. Unless they can work, as I said, if you have that absolutely iron will and you're prepared to go through that degree of self-denial. I mean, I remember when I'd come to the end of the diets and I was much more hungry than I'd ever been and just wanted to eat more food and 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 
think we'll watch something on television. I mean, I, oh, I remember watching Nadia making baklava with golden syrup, and which normally you don't make it with golden syrup, you make it with honey, but it just looks so delicious. And I thought, this is the kind of thing that I'm surrounded by all the time. It's people on the television, it's even people on the radio making beautiful food, saying what a pleasure food is. And you're so hungry and you want to go for it. Now, some people will go, no, absolutely not. I will never let sugar or honey or carbohydrates pass my lips again. Lucky them. I and 95% of us don't have it. Jenny, is there a difference? You mentioned Tom Watson, uh, who for people who haven't heard of him, uh, was a British MP. He was. Yeah, and high up in the Labour Party. And also a chef called Tom Kerridge, who famously, both of them, uh, lost, I think, seven or eight stone. In Watson's case, it was definitely seven stone. And he reversed his uh, type 2 diabetes. Tom has now lost 12. 12? Yeah, but he was massive. Yeah. Um, and uh, they have this iron will. They must have. There is no other explanation for it. They are absolutely determined that they will not put it on. I will look at the pair of them in three or four years' time and see whether they have managed to be that determined. And if they have, good luck to them and well done. But it's extremely rare for that to happen. You are listening to The Women's Podcast, brought to you by Green and Black's Organic Chocolate. Discover a different kind of dark. Jenny, let's reel back a bit because uh, of all the reasons you gave there, genetics, uh, etc. You didn't mention your mother, who I've become slightly haunted by. <laughs> um, she was very slender herself. Both your grands were very overweight. Your mother was very slender and you took after your father, you more big boned, perhaps you are more Marilyn Monroe than Twiggy, as you say yourself. She took a particularly harsh attitude towards your weight gain. And the, the, the episode that stays in my head is the one when you were in university in Hull and you went to meet them when they were driving back through Hull port and you hadn't seen one another in months. Can you tell us about that? They'd been working, well, my father was working in Turkey and my mother had stayed with him. So they decided they would come back. They'd drive across Europe and they would take the boat to Hull, uh, from Rotterdam to Hull, because obviously I was at university there. And it's funny, it's very common, actually, for students to put on quite a lot of weight in their first year. Largely, I think, because they come from home where they've probably had a very good and healthy diet. They end up going to the canteen a lot, eating chips and goodness knows what, not very healthy food, buying burgers. I mean, there weren't so so many burgers in my day, but there was a lot of chips. Um, Making toast in the student house, going to the bar for the first time and beginning to drink alcohol. So I went from nine and a half to 11 and a half stone. I'm standing there at the ferry terminal. My father drives straight past me, waving like crazy. Eventually he stops, jumps out of the car, comes, hugs me. Oh, lovely to see you. My mother doesn't move from the car. I get in the back. She waits a bit. She turns around. I says, oh, God, what's happened to you? You look like a baby elephant, and just rampaged about the fact that I was fat and didn't want to come and see my student house, wasn't really interested in coming to see what was going on. She was just furious. My long hair, I suspect she didn't please her too much either. I wanted to look like Kathy McGowan, and I just looked like a fat Kathy McGowan. Um, So later that evening, I got a phone call telling me that they had arrived home and my father had been so upset by all the arguments that had gone on that he'd had a little prang with the car on the way home and clearly that was absolutely my fault for being so awful. So I went straight away to the health centre 
attached to the university and said to a young doctor there, look, you know, I've put on a lot of weight. I've got to lose it. So he said, OK, well, I can help you. I'll, I'll give you some pills that will help you lose weight. So I happily took the pills. Obviously, they were given to me by the doctor. Um, and I went on my first crazy diet, which I'd found in one of the magazines. We're talking 1968, 69 here. And it recommended eating nothing but tomatoes and boiled eggs at every meal. To this day, I cannot eat a boiled egg and a tomato on the same plate. I can eat them as separate entities, but I, if I saw them on the same plate, I would just be sick. I went down to around seven stone, at which point my tutor, who was a lovely, lovely man, said, look, Jenny, we have to have a conversation. He said, you've lost far too much weight. Your work is not as good as it was. You're very up and down. What do you want? And ended on, I'm not on anything. I don't take any drugs. I never have. I haven't even smoked a spliff. And he said, no, 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 come on. You're on something. What is it? And I said, well, only the pills the doctor gave me. He said, come on, show me what they are. And I had them in my bag, of course, brought them out, showed them to him. And he said, oh, good God, they are black bombers. I didn't know what a black bomber was, so he had to explain they're amphetamines. They're really powerful amphetamines, which is why I had no appetite. I was crazy emotionally. I was not getting on with my work at all. And I think if it hadn't been for him stepping in when he did, making sure that I was taken into the health centre, they started to feed me again. And then I insisted on doing my exams at the end of term which he didn't really want me to do. He wanted me to go straight home. I did go home for the summer vacation, walked through my mother's door and she said, oh, good God, you've lost far too much weight. But that was always the case with her, you know. Oh, God, you've put on weight. Oh, my goodness, you've lost too much weight. You're too thin. Never, ever, ever did she just say, hello, love, how lovely to see you. It is extraordinary, Jenny, because one of the, she really did cast a long shadow, didn't she? I mean, she was instrumental in, in, in making you leave TV where you presented Newsnight and opt for radio. Well, she didn't make me. I mean, I wanted to go to the Today programme anyway, because radio is really what I've always loved. But I have to say, the fact that she used to phone me up after Newsnight, which was very late at night, every time I was on there, I'd wait for the phone to ring. And it would be, oh, you know, your fringe has got too long. You do know your eyes are your best feature, don't you? Get your hair cut. Um, oh, and you know that red top you had on? Well, it makes your colour a little bit high. It, it's too highly coloured for you. And, and yeah, careful, try not to show your double chin. <laughs> constant, constant. I have to say, you know, I, I look back on her. And I do accept she was a little bit of a narcissist. Um, but I also try to be forgiving of her. You know, she's from that generation of women who were highly intelligent, left school when she was 16 to join the civil service because, you know, all her friends were in the war rationing, so they were never able to make anything really special I always remember my father saying how much he hated going to school with dried egg sandwiches, reconstituted dried egg sandwiches, you know, that whole thing. And then she had a good job. My grandmother had had a good job. They both had to leave because they married and had children. So they were housewives, not necessarily out of choice, but because they were forced to be. And then in 1950, I was born rationing was starting to come off. They were beginning to be able to buy things to make wonderful cakes, wonderful pastries, and they were both phenomenally good cooks. And their way of life was to keep the house immaculate and provide wonderful food for their family. And it was their way of expressing their love. So what I never learned as a child was how to control my own appetite. 
because she would, and so would my grandmother, pile my plate with delicious food. And I'd probably get through about half of it and say, look, I'm sorry, I'm full. I really don't want any more. Oh, I spent all morning making that for you. Uh, You eat the lot. And if you don't eat it now, you'll eat it later tonight. It'll still be there when it's dinner time. I never learned to control my own appetite because I had to eat more than I wanted. And that's something I say to parents, for goodness sake, feed your children really good, fresh, healthy food in small portions. If they ask for more, give them more, but don't pile their plate up and then tell them off because they're wasting some of what was on their plate. Now, Jenny, what's horrifying here is the depth of your depression when it hit. I mean, you were probably perimenopausal uh, anyway. You had a GP at the time, a woman who was overweight herself, who never remarked on your weight gain. Um, And one evening you actually rang the Samaritans, you were so low. I'm I'm so struck by this, that by the by the difference between the public image of this amazing woman that you are and this private hell that was going on because of your weight. I also remember the, the incident involving Sir Charles Forte. Uh you were sitting at this lovely glitzy dinner with him. Tell us about that. I was the guest of honour at a very fancy dinner in London. Was sitting next to him. And I'd never met him before. I knew who he was, obviously. Uh, And he actually turned to me at one point during the dinner and said, you know, you could be really a very pretty woman if you weren't so fat. And I thought, you cheeky sod. Um, And I got up, uh, I mean, not immediately, but I didn't make any more conversation. I just wanted to leave because he shamed me. And fat shaming is not a good idea. You know, you asked me at the beginning why I was not one of the, or you suggested that I was not one of the body positivity movement. I'm not, but that doesn't mean I think people who are fat or obese or whatever should be shamed because as James Corden said not very long ago, you know, if fat shaming worked to make fat people lose weight, there would be no fat kids in school because it goes on all the time. Kids in school don't get picked for any of the sporting teams. They're teased. Their exam results are not as good as they would be because they get very upset and very depressed by fat shaming. But the reason I want people to make an effort, if they possibly can, to try and lose weight is because I left it till I was 64. And by that time, the reason I decided I had to take my fat chance, which is the other half of the title of the book, of course, Fat Cow, Fat Chance, was when my younger son and I, who would never have dreamt of shaming me for being fat, we were walking in the park. I was feeling heavy and lethargic and we were going along slowly and sitting down at every bench and we sat down and a woman on a disability motorcycle went by with her two little dogs trotting along beside her and their lead attached to the handlebar. And Charlie, out of absolute concern for his mother, said, you know, mum, it really worries me, but if you continue the way you are at the moment, that's going to be you before very long. And of course, he was right. You know, I'd had breast cancer, I'd had two hips replaced, and I have no doubt that my obesity contributed to both those things. So, whilst I don't want to shame anybody who's obese, I want to say to them be careful because obesity is dangerous. You go a little bit further, Jenny. You talk about the plus size American model, I think, who got the cover of Vogue and basically gave everybody the two fingers and said, it's no one else's business how fat I am. Uh, You say that may be the case in America where everybody is, uh, no one is insured or 
unless they're paying for private health insurance. But it does matter if you're under a system like the NHS, where everybody is contributing to the system. Did you get any blowback for that? I think if you expect to have the kind of health care that we've got, which we know is severely stressed financially, you do have a certain duty to try and take as much care of yourself as you possibly can, which I know is difficult. I know how hard it is. But my fat chance was to have metabolic surgery. A lot of people call it bariatric surgery. But those of us who know don't. Um, and what I worked out when I started to investigate that was that if you have the surgery and you're on the borderline of type 2 diabetes, which I was on the borderline of type 2 diabetes. I didn't have it, but I had glucose intolerance. The operation, if you have it on the NHS, costs 10 to 11,000 pounds. And I worked out with a colleague of mine at work that that operation pays for itself within three years because it saves the NHS so much of the extra care that people with obesity, type 2 diabetes, the kind of heart problems that it causes, all the difficulties that obesity creates. If you lose the weight, you don't have to have all that treatment. And so it makes complete sense for the NHS to fund more of them. This country funds fewer of those kind of operations than any other European country. And, you know, the surgeries may be not for everybody, but it should certainly be on offer. I was going to have it done on the NHS and then realised I'd have to spend a whole year going through a great palaver of going and being lectured about healthy eating and exercise, you know, all this stuff that I knew up to here anyway. Um, and, and I happened to have inherited a little bit of money from my parents. And I decided to pay for it myself because I was 64 years old. I needed to get it done and get it done quickly. And I knew my mother would think it was the best way to spend her money, frankly. And Jenny, so you went about investigating different types of surgery because there isn't only one. There's not just one solution. At this point, you were operating out of sheer desperation and you found Professor Rubio. And what did he tell you? He is Professor Francesco Rubino. He's Italian. He trained in Italy. He worked in France. He worked in the United States. He did... Uh, he, he didn't want to do what he then called bariatric surgery because he thought, oh, God, why do all these fat people need an easy way out? And then when he went to the States, he met a few people who were involved in it. So he started to investigate it. One of the research projects that he did, he found that the people that he had done what he now calls metabolic surgery, as I said, when he'd done that surgery on them, before they'd even had time to lose any weight, their type 2 diabetes was gone. So that was a real find, that it not only helped mobility and, you know, everything else, it got rid of type 2 diabetes in the majority of patients who had it. So I had long conversations with him he was a very, very, very sympathetic doc doctor. I was told by people who'd worked on it at, at, at the BBC that they had interviewed him, that he was the best researcher on this. He was also the best surgeon. So I asked him if he would do mine. My GP, who, uh, my new GP, who was a man and not fat, um, he'd said, look, why don't you try having a gastric balloon? which meant having a balloon in, put into my stomach and inflated, which would stop me being able to eat quite so much. And I well, and then after six months, you would lose a bit of weight and it would come out. And I thought, what's the point of that? Because that 
really would only have the same effect as one of these crazy diets because you lose a lot of weight, you think you can go back onto a normal diet, you put it all back on again. Um, then a number of my friends had had the gastric band, um, which was not entirely satisfactory. Some of them had a lot of pain. They tried to adjust it themselves so that they could eat more. It was very uncomfortable. So uh, there are two others. One is a gastric bypass, and that is a little more dramatic than the one that I had because it bypasses the stomach, but it also means the rest of the alimentary canal has to be readjusted so that the food that you do take in will go down, but it's not as easy as the one I had, which was a gastric sleeve whereby 80% of your stomach is simply removed, just taken away, and it's stitched up, but the whole of the system is still as intact as it was before the surgery. Um, so I had that, and one of the great things about the sleeve is the part of the stomach that contains the ghrelins, which are the hunger hormones, is removed. So you don't get that, <clears throat> hungry, I'm hungry, I'm hungry. Um, I have, I think it's five, although I don't even notice them. They're so tiny, tiny little scars. How they get so much of the stomach out with such tiny little holes, I've got no idea, but they clearly do. Um, I had the operation at about five o'clock. I woke up about 10 o'clock at night. My son was there to see that I was okay. Obviously, he was panicking about it all. Um, I slept all night. I got up the next morning. I was allowed a cup of coffee. Uh, by lunchtime, I felt a little, tiny little bit peckish. And I had some tomato soup. And then the next day, I went home with orders to eat, not to eat anything, just liquids for a fortnight. And then you can start to puree food and keep it soft, and then slowly start to introduce other solid foods. And I was astonished that within six weeks, I was eating absolutely normally, but very, very, very small portions. And I now, I mean, I have big plates in my kitchen because my son and my husband eat off big plates and they eat quite large portions. I only eat on a small plate. If I go to a restaurant, I have the equivalent of two starter portions. Um, and I have set at this weight. I mean, I've lost, what, 24 to 14? That's 10 stones. You lost 10 stone. And I seem to have just settled at that. And I thought to myself, well, you know, you can try to lose more weight. You could, you know, do weight watching or something again. And then I remembered Nigel Lawson. Nigel Lawson, the former Chancellor of the Exchequer, um, who lost a ton of weight in his... 60s, maybe 70s, through ruthlessness. Um, and I remember looking at, at pictures of him in the paper and thinking, oh, my God, he's aged 20 years. You know, he looks ill. His face has completely collapsed. I thought, no, I don't want to do that. I'll keep a little bit of plumptitude so that uh, the face doesn't collapse. Um, and I'm perfectly happy now. But you have a view, Jenny, that, that, that we all have a set weight, that, that our body reverts to a particular weight. Scientists say, yes, we do, that we do have a set point. Um, you know, it would have been great for my body to decide it would go back down to nine and a half stone and that be my set weight. But that's a little unrealistic at the age of 70. And I would look like a hag. So what's the point? You know, everybody... All my career has told me, you know, some of the most beautiful women in the world have always said, look, you know, when, when you get to your 60s, you either sacrifice your face or your body. Look after your face. <laughs> <laughs> 
Jenny, tell us now the problem with this, as you point out in your very readable book, is that Professor Rubino, for example, is was having difficulty spreading the word of this fantastic surgery, which of itself reversed type 2 diabetes, because there's a moral note here. It's seen as the easy way out. Um, I don't know how he's doing now, but to me, first of all, has has anything happened yet to to progress uh, this kind of surgery from that point of view? Well, uh, he keeps holding conferences, which I frequently go and speak at. I had a lovely email from him yesterday saying, oh, Jenny, I got a, I bought, he said, a copy of your book. And I would have loved to have seen you personally to get you to sign it. But of course, in the current circumstances, I can't. Is it okay for me to have your address so that I can send it to you and you can sign it for me? Because I'm so proud of it, which was really, really sweet of him. And I emailed him back and said, what do you make of what Boris Johnson's been saying about a new obesity policy? And he said, well, you know, I don't have any difficulties with them trying to cut sugar in food, with them trying to improve the food, particularly in poorer areas where there's so much junk food being sold. He said, but, you know, We who work in this field know that some of our most obese patients, we could put them on a starvation diet and make them walk right the way around the world. And it would make absolutely no difference because they're just not going to lose the weight through eating less and moving more. And he said, I I just hope, because in the very early stages when Boris was talking about this, he was saying we need to look at providing more, he called it bariatric surgery, on the NHS. That has not been mentioned in the current publicity about the obesity strategy. Professor Rubino is really hopeful um, there's an, organi- an obesity organisation that is putting pressure on the government for that reason, because it makes sense. It just makes sense. You know, if this is a disease, and even if you just put a hyphen in the middle and call it dis-ease, uh, it is a disease. So many of the scientists are convinced that it should qualify as a disease. When I had breast cancer, which I'm sure my obesity contributed to, nobody complained about the cost of cutting off one of my breasts on the NHS. Why would they complain about half my stomach being cut away on the NHS, if I'd had it on the NHS, and then me not having to be constantly going around to the doctor whinging about my type 2 diabetes and demanding drugs? Hmm. Jenny, we're back. We've come round in a circle in a way, in, um, in that fat is a is is a feminist issue, which we haven't even talked about about the Susie Orbach and how you you tried various talking therapies as well. Um, the book is well worth reading for that purpose as well. And I'm completely in agreement with you about about when you went for the talking therapy, where you were expected to babble away and got no response from the therapist. But we're back to the whole issue of being a moral, a moral issue. Um, and it, do you think that is why this has not moved on for Professor Obino and why it's OK to cut off your breast on the NHS, but not to have bariatric surgery? Is that what it comes down to? It's an attitude that needs to change. You know, this goes back as far as we can remember to the seven deadly sins, you know, Gluttony, greed is one of the seven deadly sins that people who are fat have always been slagged off, pardon my expression. And and that's gone on and on and on. You're fat, you're greedy, you're lazy. We now know that is not necessarily true. There are many more reasons why people become fat. It doesn't mean they're greedy and lazy. And what we have to do is accept that I think it is a disease. And you may call it a moral issue. You're you're trying to save the NHS money. But actually, what you're doing is trying to make sick people better. 
which for me is the most important thing. You know, that's what the NHS is for. I think politicians have thought to themselves, oh, my God, you know, we can't seem to be wasting NHS money on these fat, lazy people. Well, they have to learn it's not about being fat and lazy. Boris Johnson's been cycling around London for years. He was massive when he got COVID. He's lost a lot of weight. He's obviously tried very hard. I suspect the fiancé has been feeding him nothing but salads. And he's back on his bike and saying, oh, but he was a cyclist. He did exercise. He'll put it all back on again unless he's got an iron will, which I suspect he may not have, um, or he has medical help. Jenny Murray, I'm so grateful to you for talking to us today. And I heartily recommend your book for a lot of reasons. But in particular, I think that's one of the unexpected results of it is, is, is your evangelization for bariatric surgery and why it appears to make sense in the end. Um, good luck with your lovely new home by the sea and with your lovely new life. We'll be watching you very closely. Thank you Thanks very so much. much. Thanks so much, Jenny. That's it for today. Thanks again to our guest, Jenny Murray. If you want to get in touch, we're on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram at IT Women's Podcast and we're on email thewomenspodcast at irishtimes.com. The podcast is produced by Roisin Engel and by Suzanne Brennan with JJ Vernon on sound. Until next time, thanks very much for listening. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.